Hello, my friends. Welcome back. It's me, Andrew Fantasia. It's that guy. I know. I'm sorry. If you were expecting someone else, and you probably were, you're rife with disappointment. But that's okay. I'm going to try to make it up to you by doing what we do best here on That's a Wizard. By talking about entertainment. All the entertainment news that's not fit to print because I'm not a newspaper yet. But uh, if somebody just gets me a full-color picture of Spider-Man... Maybe we can change things. Uh, In case you uh, didn't know, it's one of my lifelong dreams that I know will never come to fruition is to be the editor of a newspaper just so I can talk like J. Jonah Jameson. Uh, Smoke a cigar inside an office building, wear suspenders, and ask for front page headlines regarding Spider-Man. That's just always been a dream. It's probably never going to happen, and I'm okay with that, as long as you're okay with that. But welcome to That's So Wizard Episode 3. That's something I think we're all okay with, is starting this show off. And let's start it off with a little bit of uh, some melancholy news. I'm sorry, I gotta drop some... Actually, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that back. It's not melancholy news at all. In fact, it's not bad news or good news. It's just news that might make certain fans of certain things a little bit on edge... And that news revolves around a little movie called The New Mutants. Guys, we're probably all X-Men fans here. Most of us are. I mean, there's been so many X-Men movies. Chances are one of them, at least one of them, floats your boat. X-Men is is getting up there. It's long in the tooth. And thanks to the new Disney acquisition of Fox, you know, it's going to be rebooted. Fox isn't running the show anymore and that's a little bit sad that's kind of it's it's ending is different from other hollywood endings sometimes a franchise will end but it'll be on its own terms you know just kind of like how the lord of the rings trilogy ended i guess it just kind of it ended it told its story and that was that and yes they brought it back with the hobbit and whatnot but it ended the way it was supposed to and we could look forward to that ending and be like well that was great and, and we moved on to other things. And then you got other franchises like Spider-Man, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man, that did not end on its own terms. Uh, it just kind of went through its paces, and then all of a sudden everybody was like, we do want 3D now, so they rebooted it and tried to keep their their hold on the Spider-Man name and rebooted it, and been, they infused the movie with more 3D than they should have. And uh, what we got were two Andrew Garfield movies that uh, I do not care for. Well, the first one I didn't care for. The second one I didn't see because I didn't care to see it. But that's how that's how that affected me. But that that's uh, that's an ending not on the terms that we would have liked. I think a lot of people, regardless of how they felt about Spider-Man 3, would have liked to see a Spider-Man 4. That's how we feel. When we love a franchise, if a movie in the franchise is not the greatest... It'd be nice to have one more so that it can at least end on a high note. And Spider-Man, Tobey Maguire's Sam Raimi Spider-Man never got that chance. It ended with three. Almost everybody hated three. I think three is okay. A lot of people hated it, and that's that. It did not end on great terms. X-Men is ending in a very different way. It's sort of in between that, isn't it? Because it's not necessarily ending on its own terms. It's not drawing things to a close. It's a premature stop because Disney has bought them out. However, it doesn't feel like we are being robbed of the ending of this franchise. You know, I don't see any fans sitting around being like, oh man, I was looking forward so much to 
X-Men 14, the return of Magneto. Like, there there was no endgame or there was no sort of goal in mind that we were just hankering for. Granted, it did end on a sour note because of Dark Phoenix. I mean, talk about a bland X-Men movie. I just saw that a month ago and I've already forgotten what it's about. So I get that there's that contention that we X-Fans might have where it's like, oh man, do they really want to end on Dark Phoenix? Is that really going to be the last movie in the superhero franchise that really kicked this all off and made superhero franchises a thing? Is that really how we're going to send it off? I know a lot of people who would have preferred for Logan to be the end of it all, and that's it. Just end it with Logan. And Logan is, you know, I have my problems with Logan. Overall, I really like it. I do have some problems with it, but I think it is an excellent way to end a franchise, especially that one. You bookend it with Wolverine, because you started with Wolverine, you introduced a whole buttload of other people, we talked about their stories, and then you end it with Wolverine too. That's a beautiful way to go out. That's, that's a note to go out on. Going out on Dark Phoenix, not so much. But originally the plan was New Mutants. Now, New Mutants was going to be the final Fox X-Men movie. That was it. That was how they were going to send it off with the New Mutants. And it promised this frightening, scary world that we hadn't seen before in an X-Film. Or maybe even a superhero film, for that matter. But then problems started happening. Because, guys, this movie was filmed, like, I don't know how many years ago. I think I still had some of my baby teeth when they started filming New Mutants. And they have been talking about doing reshoots because there's a lot of stuff in this movie that needs some work. According to some sources, over half of the movie needs reshooting. And that's hard to do when you have a big cast. And, I mean, you got people like Maisie Williams. you got people like Anya Taylor-Joy. They're coming up in the world. Just because Maisie Williams is done with Game of Thrones, that doesn't mean she's not going to be working anymore. That girl's going to be getting work constantly. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if Maisie Williams and or her co-star Sophie Turner, Sansa Stark, ends up in another big franchise of movies that I'll save for later. Just remember, Maisie Williams and Sophie Turner. I wouldn't be surprised if they end up in this franchise sooner rather than later. Particularly Sophie Turner, but we'll get there. I digress, though. New Mutants has a lot of work to be done before it's finished. And right now, word on the street, the street that I am not walking down because I live in Canada, so I have to get all my news forthhand. But word on the proverbial street is that Disney is not confident that New Mutants is even worth the trouble or the money. Because Disney took a loss on Dark Phoenix. I don't know how the math works. I don't know how the economics of Dark Phoenix work. I thought that because it was made before the Fox merger that all the profits were strictly Fox profits, but I guess they would go into Disney's pocket at that point, which is kind of a weird thing. I don't understand how the economics of business work, and I'm not going to try. If you know, great. Send me a quick comment about how it works and try to dumb it down like as if you're talking to a child, because I'm basically a child when it comes to things like that. Somehow, Disney bore the financial brunt of Dark Phoenix's shortcomings. People did not like that movie, I understand. It was an X-Men movie, it had the whole cast in it, and we, you know, we like that cast. Sophie Turner, again, James McAvoy, Michael Fassbender, we love those people, we love those X-Men. And they just somehow made the blandest X-Men movie since, like, X-Men Origins Wolverine. I don't know how they did it. At this point, 
I'm kind of convinced that the Dark Phoenix story is just not worth telling. It's, I don't know if there's a curse or whatever, but they've tried twice. Two different Hollywood machines have tried to tell the Dark Phoenix story on the big screen and it's not working out. Personally, I've never read the Dark Phoenix comic. I've never even seen the Dark Phoenix episodes of the cartoon, so I don't know much about it. Is it as amazing as people say it is? Is it so good that it's really worth trying so many times to make a movie out of it? Because so far, it just seems like it's Jean Grey getting really mad and then dying and then coming back. That's that. That's really all it sounds like to me. And at this point, after two swings at that particular bat and two big, big misses, personally, if we never hear the words Dark Phoenix again in terms of X-Men, I will be totally okay with that. Because, you know what, I'm sure there are plenty of other good stories you can tell in the X-Universe. This well just feels dry. It feels like you can't do anything entertaining with Dark Phoenix. And Disney certainly, uh, their pocketbooks are certainly feeling that. Because guess what, Dark Phoenix lost them a lot of money. It was uh, their biggest loss of the year so far. Probably their only loss of the year. I don't think Disney is leaking money at this point. I think they're doing all right. So when the powers that be, when the Bob Igers and whatnot turn their eyes toward New Mutants, you can understand their apprehension. I was always of the mind, just from what we heard about these two movies, I always assumed New Mutants was going to be better. It was going to be smaller, lower budget, but edgier, darker, and a better X-Men movie. Dark Phoenix always sounded like it was just going to be kind of par for the course. So is Disney afraid because the X-Men name now is kind of tainted or are they afraid because New Mutants feels like it's more of a risk more of a chance uh, and there's more inherent risk of losing money I don't know I can't tell you I, I don't watch Bob Iger every minute the camera I put in his walk-in closet only gives me about 12 minutes of footage a day I'm sorry so I can't tell you what he's feeling I can tell you that for the X-Men franchise to end this way to me that's a bummer so right now, it doesn't even look like New Mutants is going to be made. It's totally up in the air. That's why I said it's not necessarily good news, but it's not bad news either. It's just up in the air. New Mutants is hovering there. It's a low-hanging fruit. Disney can try to pluck it, or they can be like, you know what, screw it. We got other things to worry about and move on. If New Mutants never sees the light of day, I'll be disappointed, but not as disappointed as I am that this is how X-Men is ending. This is how the Fox X-Men series is ending. Not with a bang, but with a hideous, hideous little whimper. That's sad, man. And I hope somebody at Disney can rectify it somehow. I don't know how. They're carrying over Deadpool, which is kind of nice, I guess. But as it stands, X-Men is the big wild card now going into Phase 4 and beyond of, of Marvel. Because we are so used to the X-Men folk we have come to know and love. They've been, not rebooted, but they have been, you know, the cast has changed. We've gotten younger versions of everybody. And we have spent two decades getting used to this cast of characters. Getting used to Patrick Stewart and, and, and Hugh Jackman. And all of just the plot that this story has carried forward since the first movie. To suddenly have to embrace a whole new X world is going to be a big challenge. I don't know how they're going to do it. But moving forward, I think that is the MCU's biggest hurdle they're going to have to get over. How do you make the public fall in love with the X-Men all over again when the X-Men you're giving them is something completely different? 
whatever that difference is, I think that's what's going to sway the vote towards one end or another. However differently they choose to portray the X-Men in this world, that difference is going to either make us love it or be like, ah, you know what, this isn't hashtag not my X-Men, baby. I miss the Fox world. It's going to be one or the other. And I don't envy whoever has to have that writing job, but at the same time, I wouldn't mind that writing job because that kind of sounds fun. Now, if mutants aren't necessarily your thing, if you prefer stories about, say, I don't know, young African princes who head on over to New York City to try to find the love of their life, maybe this will be more up your alley. We've been hearing for some time now that Coming to America is getting a sequel, and now it's really making a lot of headway. I mean, they have a full cast ready to go. They have the title ready to go. The title is Coming to America, but it's the number two instead of the word two, which is, I feel like I'm in 1998 again. That feels like a 1998 title. Like, Jungle to Jungle. But, uh, I'll take it. And they've announced the main cast, and I'm gonna read out the cast to you because so many returning cast members in this, it's kind of nice. It's nice to see so many people come back after all these years. We got, in Coming to America, Eddie Murphy, Arsenio Hall, Shari Headley, John Amos, James Earl Jones, and Vanessa Bell Calloway are all coming back. Those are all returning cast members in Coming to America. That's exciting. But on top of that, we have new cast members. We have Kiki Lane from If Beale Street Could Talk. We have Jermaine Fowler. Uh, he was from Sorry to Bother You. You might remember him from there. Rick Ross. Leslie Jones, a Ghostbuster herself, is going to be in this. And Mr. Wesley Snipes. So Coming to America, if this tells me anything, it tells me that Coming to America is going to have no problem whatsoever with the supernatural. You put Wesley Snipes and Leslie Jones in a room together, no ghost or vampire stands a chance. Everybody's going to be okay. They're going to keep us safe. Now I'll let you in on a fun little secret, and it's this is completely... It, it just worked out so serendipitously that this happened to all take place the way it did. This morning, I got up and, as I do every time I start to record an episode of That's a Wizard, you know, I checked the news, I compiled a, a list of, of news topics I want to talk about. And this Coming to America casting kept coming up, so I was like, okay, this is a big deal, let's, let's, uh, let's address this, let's talk about this. The very first time I ever saw Coming to America was literally 12 hours ago. It was last night, 12 hours from when I'm recording this. I just randomly saw it somewhere, like it was on a, like an, a list of movies on demand. And I was like, oh, that's a movie that I've always heard about, never seen. I have some time to kill before bed. I'm going to watch Coming to America. I had no idea that today I was going to be talking about the sequel. The sequel wasn't even really on my radar. It was just something I knew was happening, but it was always kind of on, not even the back burner, like somebody else's stove. Like I just, it didn't really mattered to me. I was like, okay, cool. Eddie Murphy's making a sequel to that. I haven't seen the original, so that doesn't phase me. So the fact that it just worked out like this, I just happened to watch it last night for the first time ever, and now it's coming up in the news. I think that's a sign. Illuminati confirmed. You heard it here first. I liked the movie. I didn't love it, but I dug it. I thought it was cool. It had a lot of funny moments. I really liked Arsenio Hall's character. Um, it was strange to see a romantic comedy, because this is clearly... This is 120 billion percent a romantic comedy. It's it's a rom-com. You can stick it on the shelf next to My Best Friend's Wedding and Made in Manhattan. Like, they're, they're 
It is 100% a romantic comedy, but it's very R-rated. You know, they're dropping F-bombs quite frequently. So I found it to be a really odd mixture. I've never seen a rom-com that used the F-word so many times. I thought uh, that was kind of neat. That was my biggest takeaway from coming to America, if you're wondering what I thought about it. I also thought that, as always, as always, James Earl Jones was an absolute delight. And above everybody else in that cast, and it was a good cast, but above everybody else, I am so happy that James is coming back for part two. I don't know how old he is now. He's got to be at least in his 80s. He's got to be a really old dude. So I don't think they're going to give him much screen time in coming to America, but... I would watch it just to see what he has to say, because I I love that dude so much. But uh, speaking of sequels, all right, speaking of sequels, there's another sequel that's not being made. It's it's nowhere, it's not even greenlit right now. It's just in talks. And in talks could mean a number of things. It could mean it gets announced tomorrow. It could mean it gets announced in two years. Could mean a lot of things. But it is in talks, and I wanted to bring it up because I think there's a lot of conversation to be had about it. As you might know, if you've watched any of my videos on my Andrew Fantasia YouTube channel, and if you haven't, please watch some of the videos on my Andrew Fantasia YouTube channel. In fact, watch them all, and then like them all, and subscribe. That would help me out a lot. But uh, if you have seen any of them, you know that I am not a fan of Disney's live-action remakes. I was really, really not a fan of Jungle Book. I saw Aladdin just because it's my favorite cartoon movie from the Disney Renaissance era. So I had, I felt kind of obligated to watch Aladdin, but I didn't hate it. I, it's just, you know, it's not something I would ever watch again. I didn't bother with Beauty and the Beast. I didn't bother with The Lion King. And I'm not going to bother with Mulan and Little Mermaid and whatever the hell else they're coming out with. I don't care about these films. However, I thought it was interesting when I hopped online and saw so many stories. And I'm not just talking one little thing that was kind of buried that I had to kind of spot like a little gold nugget. So many stories. I found at least four links from four different sources to this story regarding a sequel in talks for Aladdin. And this is interesting. I will say that. I am curious about it. I'm not necessarily interested in watching it yet. But I'm curious about it. Remember, like I said, Aladdin was my favorite Disney film growing up. I loved the shit out of that movie. And then there came to a point where they made an Aladdin animated series. And to kick off the Aladdin animated series, they did a very cheap but still very fun direct-to-video sequel to the motion picture. And it was called The Return of Jafar. And it was my favorite Disney villain back again in the spotlight. And he was an evil genie. And he was really powerful, and Aladdin and his friends had to fight him, and they teamed up with Iago, and Iago became a good guy. The Return of Jafar was, uh, I had a lot of fun with that, regardless of, of how good it might have actually been. But Return of the Jafar kicked off the Aladdin animated series, and the an animated series was just Aladdin and Jasmine and the genie and, you know, the Sultan, Abu, the carpet, everybody, and Iago going around having adventures in the Arabian desert fighting villains. It was a Saturday morning cartoon, but it was Disney's Aladdin. I mean, I don't know. Imagine like DuckTales, but it was Aladdin. I, I can't put it any other way. 
and they just fought villains and, and, you know, had crazy adventures and there was sand. And I remember a lady who had like a scorpion or something like that. I, I don't know the details, but that was a thing. And then they ended it all with a third movie. And this one, I think, was in the theaters again because they brought back Robin Williams. They, they were proud of this one, Aladdin and the King of Thieves. And I only watched it once. I only saw King of Thieves once. I remember very, very little except that they actually show the wedding. Aladdin and Jasmine actually got married in that. That's all I remember. And there was a guy with like Wolverine claws, I think. I don't know. But I do remember everybody loved it. And to this day, people will still say, guys, you know what? The King of Thieves was friggin' magnificent. And maybe it was. I just don't remember because it's been so long. So along comes the 2010 era Disney making their live action reboots. And they make Aladdin. And I'm like, okay, fine. It's Aladdin. I saw it. I was like, all right. That, that was fine. Next. And uh, now all of a sudden they're talking about a sequel. And I'm going to read you the quote that I found from uh, the producer of Aladdin. His name is Dan Lin. They were talking to him about the potential of a second movie. Dan Lin confirmed that there have been talks of a second movie. And he said this quote. If I told you the fans would go crazy. It's just too early for me to reveal. But just know that we're looking at a lot of different source material and it's not going to be based on one singular source, but we're going to take the best of everything that's been done before and create something fresh and new. So that's the quote from Dan Lin, the producer. Honestly, it makes me feel about as good as I possibly could feel about a sequel to the live-action Aladdin. The idea of them pulling from different sources, pulling from possibly Return of Jafar, possibly King of Thieves, possibly the animated series, it leaves so much room to play in. And what I remember liking about the animated series was that the world of Agrabah, the world of Arabia as told in Disney's Aladdin, had a lot of mythology to it that we never got to see because the movie was so self-contained. It was just about this one kid fighting this one sorcerer because of this one genie. And that's it. But obviously there's other genies out there in the desert. Obviously there's other monsters and creatures and magic users and things like that. The other two Aladdin movies and the cartoon really expanded that mythology. It, it, it full on gave us like Aladdin canon, baby. Now obviously the canon is a different story in this new movie. It is a canon of boring Jafars and boring Iagos. But... I'm curious to see what they do with this. Where are they going to take this story? With their unlimited budgets, what are they going to show us in the world of Agrabah? So I'm going to keep my eyes open for that and just see what they say if this movie ever gets made. Again, I'm not excited, but damn am I ever curious. But now it's time for something that does excite me very much. Maybe. Let's talk about Star Wars. Let's talk about Star Wars Episode Nine. The Rise of Skywalker. This summer has been scant on information. You know, April gave us that big reveal and we got all those characters and, and, and pictures and whatnot. And I'm sure that come September, October, I think when Force Friday rolls around in October, we're definitely going to find out more. We're going to get a trailer. We're going to get a poster. We're going to get all kinds of good information. But right now, the well is dry for info. Except one big thing that just came out regarding the music. John Williams has apparently almost completed scoring The Rise of Skywalker, his final Star Wars motion picture. 
And according to a quote from, I think it's his brother. Ah, you got to forgive me. I'll have to double check that. There's a guy named Don Williams. I think that's his brother. I'm pretty sure it's not his son, who is the lead singer of Toto. This is Don Williams, who is a percussionist or something along those lines. Don, if I'm biographing you incorrectly, I am so sorry. But Don Williams has spoken up about John's role as composer for Rise of Skywalker. And he said that John was given his task for episode 9, and he was given 135 minutes of music. That's the big magic number that's been going around in all these stories. That Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, John Williams has written for it 135 minutes of music. He goes on to talk about how we are going to hear every theme we have ever heard in Star Wars before in The Rise of Skywalker. Whether it's a full-blown song or whether it's just a few subtle notes hidden in there, we're going to hear pretty much every main theme. That alone is exciting, but I want to talk about that number. I want to talk about 135 minutes. If you're a Rebel Scum podcast fan, you have heard me say a bajillion times that I would be very, very, very happy. I'd be a very happy man if they announced that The Rise of Skywalker was going to be close to, if not over, three hours long. I love long movies. Most of the time they are good. That's why I love them. The only exception I can think of is Transformers. But other than that, movies that touch or linger near that three-hour mark are usually pretty stellar movies. And the idea of a Star Wars movie that hits that mark, or at least comes close to that mark, like two hours and fifty, that would make me so friggin' happy. Now, 135 minutes of music is not three hours. It is two hours and fifteen minutes of music. And people have been using this information. And when I say people, I mean uh, news outlets like like um, BuzzFeed and whatnot, uh, Screen Rant, Comic Book Movie, etc. They've been using this information to say that this hints at a possible longer runtime than we're used to. My answer to that is I want to say, oh my god, yes, it means we're getting a longer Star Wars movie. But I'm being realistic here and I'm being logical here. And my answer is this really tells us nothing at all. It's kind of a non-story. It gets me excited because that's a lot of music, but it's kind of a non-story. And here's why I think that's the case. I looked up the soundtracks for The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. Okay? I looked up both of those soundtracks and I checked how long each one is. If I listen to those soundtracks from start to finish, every note of music, how long am I spending on each soundtrack? The Force Awakens was 2 hours and 16 minutes, the movie. The movie Force Awakens was 2 hours and 16 minutes. And the soundtrack, from start to finish, was 77 minutes. So if I put in that CD, it's 77 minutes of music. Much shorter than the actual movie. The Last Jedi is the longest Star Wars film to date. It is 2 hours and 32 minutes. That is a hefty movie. I looked up The Last Jedi soundtrack. How long would that be? And guess what? It's almost exactly the same as The Force Awakens. It is 77 minutes long. An hour and 17 minutes of music. Both films, despite their different lengths, have almost identical soundtrack lengths. If the soundtrack for Rise of Skywalker is 2 hours and 15 minutes long, going by that logic, yeah, it sounds like the movie's going to be ginormous, but I don't know 
what makes it to the soundtrack and what doesn't. I don't know the logistics of that. And just from the small amount of data that I've gathered, the pattern I sense here is that the length of the soundtrack and the length of the movie it belongs to don't really correlate in any way. If The Last Jedi's soundtrack was a lot longer, then yeah, we'd be having a different conversation. But the fact that it's the same length as The Force Awakens soundtrack tells me that this is a a weird and unreliable way to gauge how long the movie might be. That's what it tells me. And trust me, that's hard for me to say. I want to say with all my heart and soul, oh my God, The Rise of Skywalker is going to be three hours and 12 minutes. I am giddy as a schoolboy right now. That's what I want to say. But I'm tempering that excitement because I have a feeling this number doesn't mean what Screen Rant and Comic Book Movie and BuzzFeed think it means. I have a feeling this number is something a bit more peripheral for now. I don't think we can we can hold it up to anything and use it as, as a as a base measurement of the film's length yet. But I hope that changes. If we get a three-hour movie announcement, guys, if they announce that Rise of Skywalker is going to be anywhere near three hours long, make sure you tune in to Rebel Scum because I am 100% going to be making a reaction video about how happy that makes me. I'll warn you ahead of time. If that ends up happening, turn the volume on your speakers down because I might scream with joy. Now, any Rebel Scum fan knows that I am a huge, huge Star Wars fanatic but I'm also an enormous fan of another franchise of movies. Now, remember earlier when I told you that I foresee a future where Sophie Turner and Maisie Williams from Game of Thrones are going to be cast in a big franchise sooner rather than later. This is what I'm talking about. The franchise that I am also in love with and obsessed with that is not Star Wars. And that franchise is James Bond. I'm a huge, huge James Bond fan I grew up watching those movies with both of my parents. Um, I'm just, I'm so endeared to James Bond and the many, many iterations of James Bond we have gotten over the years. And I am stoked for Bond 25. I cannot, I am, it's literally for me, the excitement level is Rise of Skywalker. And then right underneath that, Bond 25. Cannot wait. Cannot wait. Being British actresses and being very beautiful actresses and very talented actresses, I think it's only a matter of time till we see Sophie Turner and or Maisie Williams as leads in a Bond film. Uh, Sophie Turner, I said, is probably more likely because she is noticeably older. Maisie Williams still looks young, probably too young for Bond, but I can definitely see a Sophie Turner Bond girl in the very near future. And if the rumors are true that Richard Madden is in the running to be the new James Bond after Daniel Craig steps down, Richard Madden played Rob Stark on Game of Thrones, so it'd be It'd be incest all over again. We could have Richard Madden doing a love scene with Sophie Turner. And George R.R. Martin somewhere will be pumping his fist with glee instead of writing book six, The Winds of Winter. Get on that, George. Get on that. But now there's not a whole lot of news about Bond 5. Uh, there has been, obviously they've announced a while back that Rami Malek from Bohemian Rhapsody is going to be playing the villain, which is great. The only little bit of news that I heard recently that I wanted to share with you is that there's a possibility, a possibility that we might get a trailer in the first week of October. I believe October 4th or 5th, I can't remember the exact date, I wish I could, I'm sorry, but somewhere around there, somewhere around October 4th is like James Bond day, like it's a, it's a day, it's a holiday. And because the movie is slated to be released in April 2020, that would be a sweet spot, that would be a perfect place to throw in our first trailer, our first glimpse of footage of James Bond 25, and maybe, hopefully, even get a title, because we don't know the title yet. 
There's lots of title theories, uh, some that I like, some that I do not like at all. But I just can't wait to to find out more information about Bond 25, Craig's last outing as 007. So if you're a Bond fan like I am, keep your eyes open the first week of October because word through the grapevine, take this with a grain of salt, but word through the grapevine is we might find something out around that time. And now it's time for With All Due Retrospect. This might be my favorite part of the show. I don't know yet. We're only three episodes in. I don't even know if I'm allowed to have a favorite part of the show yet. But I love talking about old movies. I love rewatching movies that I haven't seen in a long time. And in the first episode, I did Rambo First Blood because I am getting myself stoked for Rambo 5, which is coming out next month, I think, already. Wow, time is flying. So I've been rewatching the Rambos to get myself acquainted, and I thought, well, for with all due retrospect, let's just let's go through the series. It's not a long series. And today we'll talk a little bit about Rambo First Blood Part 2. This, I think, is where the cliche of Rambo comes from. When you when I say the word Rambo to you, the image that pops in your head of Sylvester Stallone with his shirt off in the jungle with a machine gun and he's got a red bandana around his head, that's from this movie. That is the Rambo First Blood Part 2 Rambo. And that's kind of cool. That happens a lot with movies where our initial thought of a character is not necessarily what the character was like when they first appeared. Like, for example, look at Jason Voorhees. When I say Jason Voorhees, what do you think of? You think of the guy with the machete wearing the white hockey mask, right? Well, guess what? Jason didn't get the hockey mask until Friday the 13th Part 3. He spent two movies without a mask. But that's what we think of when we think of Jason. We think of the hockey mask. Same thing with Frankenstein's monster. If you close your eyes and I say the word Frankenstein's monster, you imagine the big Boris Karloff monster, you know, with the with the metal nodes coming out of his neck, and he's holding out his hands in front of him like a sleepwalker and walking slowly. But that didn't happen until I think either the third, no, the fourth movie, The Ghost of Frankenstein. That was the fourth one that Universal made. Because there's a scene in The Ghost of Frankenstein where the monster is blinded. I think somebody, like, puts a, a torch in front of his face or something, and he gets blinded, he can't see. That's why he's walking with his hands outstretched. He's walking like a blind person, because he, he literally can't see. But that image became so iconic that now we think of Frankenstein's monster, we think of him stumbling around with his hands stretched out in front of him. I'm always fascinated by the way that works, the way the human mind remembers a certain snippet, and it becomes part of the collective conscious. So your idea of John Rambo is probably the Rambo from First Blood Part 2. And this is definitely the most Rambo Rambo movie, if that even makes sense. This is the most you see of, of Stallone just in the jungle. He's fighting the Vietnamese and the Russians. Like, this is right in the middle of the 80s. So the Vietnamese and the Russians were still the bad guys, at least as far as the States was concerned. And he was just fighting his way through all these people in the jungle and freeing POWs and then going up against corrupt American military commanders to top it all off. Like, it's such a well-balanced Rambo film. It might be my favorite Rambo film. I'm not sure. Part one was pretty, pretty damn good, too. Part one was a beautiful emotional story. It was more of a drama with action, whereas part two is mostly action, but it's damn good action. I don't remember a whole lot about part three, except I think it was in the desert. So I'm looking forward to talking about that next time. Rambo First Blood Part 2 is just that perfect dose of Rambo. If you want to introduce somebody to the series, I wouldn't start here, even though it's like the cliche one. Start with Part 1 so that they get invested in the guy himself and then go into Part 2. But as far as sequels go, 
especially 80s sequels, this is one of the best ones. You don't get too many great sequels in the 80s, unfortunately. But I think Rambo First Blood Part 2 is one of those good ones. And uh, it's also the movie where the title started to change from First Blood to Rambo. It's, it, it's such an anomaly, the way that title changed over the years. But the movie is much better than I remember it being. I remember Part 1 being my favorite, and then the other ones I didn't care for too much. But re-watching it again, First Blood Part 2, I was like, you know what? You're all right, Rambo 2. You're all right in my books. So if you're trying to get yourself excited for Rambo 5 the way I am, do yourself a favor. Start re-watching these movies. I know for a fact you'll have a great time with 1 and 2. I can't promise 3 and 4 yet because it's been quite a minute since I've seen them, but I'll let you know at least about Part 3 next time on That's So Weird. And that is my cue to skidoo, ladies and gentlemen. I've kept you here long enough, but thank you so much for making me and my sultry dulcet tones a part of your day. I'll see you around on Rebel Scum Podcast, and I'll see you next time on episode four of That's So Wizard. See you next time.